Hi everyone, I'm Monica Toriello and you're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the consumer and retail industry. Hello and thanks for joining us today. We're now three quarters of the way through the year 2020 and it's been a year like no other for people and businesses all over the world. And in this episode, we'll be talking about one of the industries that has been most greatly affected by the pandemic, and that is the retail industry. Our focus for today's discussion will be the U.S. retail sector, but many of the lessons and imperatives we'll be discussing apply to retailers all around the world. And joining us to share their perspectives are three McKinsey partners who have all worked extensively with retailers from every subsector, including grocery, restaurants, fashion. And they've each written several articles on the retail sector, which you can find on McKinsey.com. And recently, the three of them co-authored an article titled The Next Normal in Retail, Charting a Path Forward. So let's meet our guests. First, we have Stephen Begley, a partner in McKinsey's New Jersey office. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Monica. Great to be here. Also joining us is Becca Coggins, a senior partner based in the Chicago office and a longtime leader of McKinsey's global retail practice. Hi, Becca. Hi, Monica. Thanks for having me. And finally, Steve Noble is a senior partner in Minneapolis who co-leads McKinsey's global work in retail transformation. Thanks for being here, Steve. Good morning, Monica. Thanks for having me. So to start, I'd like to ask each of you for a short answer to my first question. So one of the things that McKinsey has been tracking and that you've all been writing about is the shifts in consumer behavior that have become evident over the past few months. What's one way that your own shopping behavior has changed during this pandemic? For me, Monica, I think I sound like a cliche. Uh, my, uh, my shopping was already very heavily online. It has accelerated that way, like many Americans. Uh, But like many Americans, what I buy has shifted a fair bit. So I'm a bit of an apparel junkie, uh, but that's sort of taken a backseat to, you know, new hobbies, uh, new things for the home, you know, things to keep the kids engaged uh, around the house. For me, my grocery experience has gone completely digital Um, and my grocery experience has actually accelerated. I I live in Manhattan uh, and I pretty much didn't frequent grocery stores very often uh, prior to the pandemic. And now I uh, am constantly purchasing groceries and I only do it online. So it's a very different experience for me. And I'll I'll break the rule of one thing and offer you three, but I'll be brief in in those three. Um, So one, my front porch usually looks like a warehouse full of boxes each day. So lots of online shipping. Uh, No longer buy pants, but buy a lot more wine instead. (laughs) Yep. So you've all talked about the migration to e-commerce. So let's talk about that because it's one of the biggest and most obvious shifts during this pandemic. What has worked well there and what hasn't worked so well? So in other words, as consumers have shifted more of their spending online, what are retailers doing right? And what are many retailers still getting wrong? So I've been impressed with how quickly retailers have adapted uh, to, to this new way that, that consumers are shopping, you know, ramping up online, ramping up curbside delivery. So living in, in, uh, in Minneapolis, uh, Hy-Vee is one of the local, local grocers. Uh, and they've always had a, uh, yeah, sort of a curbside drive-through pickup. Uh, but that capability, as you might imagine, was quickly overwhelmed. Uh, the scale of, of, of demand for that was quickly overwhelmed. Uh, and so while it wasn't pretty, I was really impressed with how quickly they mobilized to create more scale. They basically um, 
cordoned off a section of the parking lot, set it up with, with shipping containers that were refrigerated. You, of course, place the order uh, online. You give them an indication of when you're going to be coming. Um, they don't give you a slot. Rather, you give them a slot. You, know, you pull up, they load the groceries in, in, in the back of your vehicle, and, and you drive off. So it was you know, a great experience, and I very much appreciated uh, how quickly they adapted. I can imagine over time, right, they will reimagine the look and feel of that experience. Uh, I think the opportunity in that is because things in many cases were set up so quickly, um, they weren't done initially with how do you create a great customer experience. They were done with just how do you get the bare, the bare minimums in place. Uh, and so I do think there's an opportunity to continue to think about how do you make some of those, those delivery or, or fulfillment models that have now been um, uh, taken up by consumers to, to be a, a better and more sustainable, more enduring customer experience. Yeah, it almost makes me think we're in the foothills of what omni-driven convenience will look like uh, and that there'll be some big innovations that scale now that the consumer expectations have been a bit reset. And I think that's where we'll start to see some more innovative models, some more interesting partnerships uh, as players try to think about new ways to meet those needs. If you look at how many more consumers are using e-com, are using curbside, are using buy online, pick up and store, um, most of them really like it uh, and plan to stick with it after this. So I think, you know, you have the consumer need. I think retailers have done a good job of standing up things, as Steve said, to be able to meet that. I think the next challenge is how do you do it with a more seamless experience, not in a way that's, you know, temporary, but that really meets these emerging needs uh, around convenience and speed, especially. Becca, you mentioned, you know, consumers um, are going to stick with something that they tried for the first time during the, during the pandemic and then they ended up liking. And another shift that you describe in your article is this, this shock to loyalty, right? A greater willingness among consumers to switch brands, switch retailers. And as you say in your article, and I quote, the beneficiaries of this shift include big brands, which are seeing 50% growth during the crisis and private labels. Some 80% of consumers who started buying private label products during the pandemic indicate that they intend to continue doing so even after the COVID-19 crisis subsides. So a couple of questions on that. First, should we believe consumers? Will they indeed stick with you know, big brands and private label uh, post-pandemic? And then a follow-up question on that is, what are the implications for retailers? What's interesting to us about this phenomenon is that it's not just brand switches, it's not just retail switches, it's not just channel switches, it's all of the above, uh, to the point where three out of four Americans will change something meaningful about the way they shop, including relationships that were previously very sticky and stable, your neighborhood grocery store, for example. Um, and you know some of the specific examples you cited, Monica, are some of the ones that stick out, we expect these could still be dynamic. But on private label, for example, it's a bit unsurprising given that consumers are really focused on value and they're buying more categories that are sort of in their essential you know, consumption categories. Uh, and so while some of these shocks to loyalty, whether it's shift to larger brands, shift to private label, started out of sheer availability. I went to the store and they didn't have the brand I typically buy because there was a big surge, so I bought the alternative. The reasons for the switch, the switching has stayed constant, but the reasons for the shift have started to evolve to reflect much more the shift around value, to reflect much more the shift around on the retail side, 
where do I actually get that omni convenience that I'm looking for? So now it's all three of those things. It's availability, it's value, and it's convenience. Uh, so we do tend to believe consumers. Uh, the private label switch, for example, we've seen in prior recessionary periods pick up at about the same clip. Overall, the level of switching is something we haven't seen in this era. So, you know, probably it could moderate a little bit, uh, but we do expect to, you know, consumers are satisfied and they're continuing to, to shift some of those things. I think the implications for retail are along the same lines of why consumers are switching, right? Are you providing available product, particularly in essential categories that are at the top of, uh, you know, consumers' you know, shopping lists? Are you providing everyday value? And are you providing that type of convenience that balances you know, my ability to get it when I need it, but also in the mode that I want it, not necessarily having to navigate big stores that are crowded, et cetera. So I think the, the implications are you know, very simply, how fast can retailers adapt to that new consumer reality that it's more focused on value and convenience than, than even pre-COVID? Yeah, so this migration to e-commerce is happening at the same time as another one of the shifts that you've just pointed out, which is a focus on essentials and value. So I want to talk a little bit about what that means for omnichannel pricing. So Stephen Bagley, in an article that you wrote in February before the pandemic, you'd observe that at least in groceries, some retailers had online price matching policies, whereas others didn't, right? They had different prices online and in store. And at the time, you had said that the jury was out on which is the right approach. What's your latest thinking on pricing? What we're seeing is uh, retailers have had an opportunity to pull back on promotions as a result of, of the last couple of months. Because, because of the increased demand, consumers' willingness to pay has been a lot higher. Um, I do think fundamentally what we're seeing, though, is at the end of the day, pricing is one of the number one value drivers for why a consumer selects one brand or sorry one retailer over another so i think that pricing will continue to be a a uh, core differentiator and a, and a core pillar um, in retailer strategies going forward i think we'll continue to see retailers experiment with the interplay between online versus offline pricing um, but one thing i think we feel pretty confident in is that price matching will continue to be uh, something that that most or all retailers do. Yeah, so let's talk about what all retailers should do. So in the article that the three of you co-authored, you named five areas that are critical for the next normal. And those five areas cover a lot of ground, right? They were revenue management, operating model, digital capabilities, capital investments, and M&A and partnerships. And instead of elaborating on all five, I'd like each of you to pick one that you think retailers aren't paying enough attention to or not adequately addressing. So out of those five, which one are retailers neglecting or overlooking? So I might start with, with revenue management. Um, and I'd start with a perspective uh, that's rooted in the, in the financial crisis, uh, 2008, 2009. Um, when we studied that crisis, we looked at what allowed some retailers to be resilient 
and come through that uh, relatively strongly while others uh, didn't. And one of the big drivers of resiliency and success through that period of, of disruption and crisis uh, was did you focus sufficiently uh, on driving top line and focus on the on the consumer in, in your business, right? Because many retailers had the reaction of we need to look first, second and third at cost and take every every bit of cost we can out given the pressure on our business. Um, the, the retailers that were most successful, of course, cer- certainly thought about a cost, but they thought much more about how do we make sure we're delivering a great customer experience? How do we make sure we're driving top line? How do we think through our pricing and our assortment uh, and our frontline sales model to deliver a great customer experience in the spirit of taking share? If you then fast forward to where we are today, I think much of the same will apply. So we're not saying certainly don't think about or take out cost where where, where that's prudent. Um, but our belief is that retailers that will come through this most successfully are those that are thinking about all the potential revenue levers to drive their business and, and outcompete those that they are, are, are positioned against, right? We, we, of course, know that some parts of retail uh, are experiencing record growth uh, and others are experiencing record decline. So this is not to say that everyone should be growing robustly, but it is a real time to out, uh, outplay and go on the offensive relative to your competitive set, uh, which we believe will allow you to come out of this uh, in a much better place long term. Yeah. And Monica, I'd, I'd say the five areas that we wrote about, they do cover, as you pointed out, this broad swath of you know capabilities across any retailer's business. And I think now is a great time to put everything on the table and really rethink it from the perspective of, of transformation, right? So whether it's finally pivoting your merchandising organization to be omni and tech enabled, or really personalizing your customer experience to a level you've never seen before, um, now is a very good time to kind of release those old constraints and, and prepare for what really is the, the next normal. But with that said, I'd say on, on the M&A point in particular, you know, we, we tend to see a lot of M&A and partnership activity anytime an industry is disrupted, right? And, and we're certainly in one of those times right now. Um, and, you know, I think we'd say we expect to see a lot of the traditional consolidation plays that you typically see. So really optimizing for COGS and SGNA opportunities. But I think here there's also this real uptick in channel expansion and making M&A or partnership plays that allow retailers to buy into new capabilities. So a good example of this would be in the fulfillment value chain, for example. It's going to be much easier and much more practical for folks to go into buy into some of these technologies like micro fulfillment is a good example uh, versus trying to buy the, or trying to build them themselves. So, and I, and I think the same argument could be made for commercial analytics. For a lot of these advanced analytics algorithms that drive pricing and promotional decisions, it's going to be much easier and much more efficient from a capital standpoint to go in and buy these capabilities and embed them in the organization versus trying to build them from scratch. So I, I do think we're going to see quite a bit of um, M&A and partnership activity, particularly on the capability building front. I think on operating model, um, there is some good news actually, and I would start there, which is many retailers we talk to or executives we talk to, frankly, are pleasantly surprised at how quickly and uh, effectively their companies were able to, able to pivot in the face of you know, the biggest exogenous shock you know, most of us will have seen in our careers. One of the examples I find really inspiring is Best Buy. Uh, they stood up curbside pickup when all of their stores were closed in 48 hours nationwide. And that's a process that for a, a retailer of that size and scale um, would typically take you know, several months of piloting to stand up and get the kinks out. But they have a very high quality, very effective customer-friendly solution um, available in a weekend. 
I think the challenge side of that and the place we think um, retailers need to uh, be very focused and introspective is how do you actually redesign the operating model to sustainably deliver uh, these types of outcomes? And that is true for speed, it's true for efficiency, and it's likely true to ensure that the operating model is now delivering on, on what we've already described as you know, new or accelerated consumer preferences and behaviors. So you know, have you sustainably redesigned for speed and for omni-channel uh, and for efficiency so you can deliver the best value to your customers? Monica, I might just add one more, a, a, a broader point that sits a level above the five specific uh, topics we're talking about, which is if you think about retail prior to six months ago, um, you know, the, the mindset of most retail executives would be if I have a business that's growing at a 2% same store comp rate, if I can get that to 3%, I'm feeling really good. And if my margin is is four and a half percent and I can get that to five percent, I'm feeling pretty good, right? And so the notion of the industry, it's a low growth, low margin business in general. And so uh, that tends to foster incremental type thinking, right? I don't need to get a big bump to actually feel pretty good about my performance. If you look at where things are at now, right, what may have been a two or three percent comp growth business is now up 20 percent, right? Or maybe down 20 percent. And likewise, margins similarly, uh, are, are up and down dramatically. And so I think it is a good forcing function to say, you sort of break that the, the mold of, of incremental thinking and, and kind of rethink more fundamentally, how do you want to reach your customer from stores versus online versus combined channels? How do you want to think about technology as a way to, to reimagine the customer experience and the, and, and the labor and service model that you might be delivering? And so I think there, there is, you know, the, the amount of, of, of disruption happening right now does uh, sort of create some space to, to think pretty big and bold in a way that just wasn't, wasn't quite as typical of retail historically. Well, these areas that you've described all sound like they require new capabilities especially in tech and digital and analytics, which leads me to a question about talent. So Steve Begley, again, in your pre-pandemic article, you say, and I quote, digital talent may be the single most important determinant of a company's likelihood to succeed in the grocery market in the next few years. So that sentence is probably even truer now, right? And you had offered up some steps for retailers to take in that article, such as hiring a chief digital officer, rethinking location strategies, looking beyond brand name universities, et cetera. But can you guys talk about the battle for talent today and what retailers can do to be attractive employers for the kinds of talent that they need? I think the battle for talent is real. And I think that retail is not necessarily a sector that folks who are you know, coming from data science background and technology backgrounds would necessarily gravitate to uh, or toward first. Uh, that said, I think that we're seeing the disruption, disruption play out in the space or, or just the beginning of it and the acceleration of many of the trends that we've talked about. So I think in terms of a sector that is primed for impact, retail is potentially the biggest one out there. Um, I think what that means for retailers is they need to be out in, in front of these populations of technologists and data scientists and, and um, statisticians and others uh, really making that case for why retail is such an exciting place to be right now. I think all of us on, on, on the podcast here would, would agree that it is. Um, and I do think, you know, we've seen a number of retailers shifting uh, their digital businesses to more urban environments 
and trying to change their formats and even change the physical look and feel of, of their office, um, office structures to attract this type of talent. I think we're going to see more of that uh, and a continued sort of um, pitch to, to the industry, so to speak, uh, around why retail is such a great place to be. I think now is the time for retailers to really get aggressive about winning the war for this talent. I think we're seeing and will continue to see a displacement of uh, digital talent, analytic talent, certainly within the industry, as you think about where there's, you know, been momentum versus uh, decline, but also with adjacent industries, right? You can imagine a pretty big influx of talent, uh, analytical talent, especially from sectors like travel and hospitality into retail. Um, as well as, you know, sort of across different subsectors of retail. I would agree, uh, you know, the war for talent is, is real and now, now is an important time to be, to be playing it aggressively. Um, and so it begs the question of, well, then what allows one retailer to differentiate itself from the next in terms of, of winning that war? And certainly part of it is, you know, are they investing in things that are exciting, et cetera. But I think that uh, maybe more more so than ever, right, there's also a chance to see, like, what's a, what's a company's DNA? What are, what are its values about, right? The, the, nature, the nature of the crisis we're in allows you to really understand how do people uh, or, or, or different retailers, how do they think about caring for their people from a health and safety point of view? How do they think about creating flexibility for a workforce that may have kids schooling from home or family members that need to be cared for at home? Um, how do they think about diversity and inclusion? And so I think there's a lot of different markers that we're seeing more acutely now that allow you to kind of stare into the soul of the company a little bit. And I think that will be probably as big a marker uh, of who wins the war for talent as you know, the job descriptions and capabilities being built. Not to say that's not important, but I do think the balance between those is, is probably different than it was six months ago as well. Interestingly, customers are starting to pay a lot more attention to those very same attributes, how a company treats its employees, you know, what kind of diversity and inclusion uh, policies they have and how that shows up to the market. So, you know, I think we'll, we'll start to see the whole ecosystem focus more there. One other example I would add, which is kind of industry wide, is uh, Eightfold AI and FMI, which is a, an industry association, came together to create something called the Talent Exchange, uh, which, which we supported them on. And, and what it does is it essentially matched retailers who had employees who needed jobs um, with those who, who had opportunities for them. And when COVID really first hit in March and, and early April, it was really impressive to see the speed at which those organizations came together to create the talent exchange and the speed at which retailers signed up to become a part of it. And so companies like you know, Macy's, Walmart, United Airlines very quickly came to the table to both put opportunities into the exchange, but also to create opportunities um, on the exchange. So I, I thought that was a great example of the industry coming together very quickly uh, to do something good for the community. It's been a tough year for many retail CEOs and it could be a long road to recovery. So my last question, if a retail CEO says to you, I want my company to thrive in the next normal, give me your single most important piece of advice, what would you say? I think my piece of advice would be chart out what your customers' demands are going to be three years from now, five years from now, create that vision, get your organization aligned on it, and work back from there to figure out the cost implications of that, the investments you need to make, and really focus on who that customer is going to be and plan from there. I think the same thing, follow the customer. 
Um, and in pursuit of following the customer, understand what you can do distinctively for them. And then as Steve said, orient your business to be able to do that. I would say, well, given the uncertainty and volatility in, in retail, um, you need to be planning in very short cycles what's going to happen next week, next month, next quarter. Don't forget to also plan for two or three years out. How does your business look fundamentally different on the backside of this uh, than it did prior to or, or even now? Uh, and so it's that balance of being agile in the short term, but also putting real thought into what comes out on the back end. So you don't sort of end up with a, uh, an answer two years from now that's just the amalgamation of a, a set of small choices. But it's an intentional uh, view of, of creating a, you know, a, a much better and different business on the backside. Great advice. Thank you, Becca, Steve Bagley, and Steve Noble for spending time with us today. And to all our listeners, thanks for sticking around. Until next time, this is Monica Toriello. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on McKinsey.com soon. To suggest ideas for future episodes, please email us at consumer underscore podcast at McKinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email updates on McKinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.